Hello and welcome to Start Your Week. I'm Jacob Jarvis and here with me today is our resident international man of mystery, Doomsday Watch host, Arthur Snell. Good morning, Arthur. Good morning, Job. Arthur, shall we skip the usual formalities and just take five minutes to laugh at Dominic Robb because we haven't had a chance to yet? Well, I think he's the sort of person who doesn't engender a huge amount of sympathy, does he? Um, when when you're uh, accused of bullying, saying things like, I will fight to the death, doesn't necessarily undermine the case, uh, you know, against you. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah the sort of Kafkaesque writing he wrote about the <laughs> yeah. Kafkaesque situation he was in was all sort of, yeah, yeah it's, it was like, yeah, this does feel a little bit dystopian, but I don't think in the way you think it may be, it yeah. maybe does. Is yeah. this hopefully the last we'll hear of him? Is this going to be the last time we'll ever talk about him? Well, I, I guess the big question is whether he'll run again for Parliament. And the suggestions are that he doesn't, he, he may not. We shouldn't forget that one of the most remarkable things at the last general election, albeit not a seat changing hands, was Dominic Raab going from having a majority of 23,000 votes to a majority of under 3,000 votes. Uh, so he had one of the safest seats in the country. And this was uh, up against Lib Dems, who generally didn't do very well in 2019. So it's not like there was some big national swing. It seems like the, the voters of Isha and Walton, where he's the MP, just don't like him. And maybe that's something to do with the behaviours we've seen exhibited from this report. He doesn't really, to me, seem uh, smart enough to be much of a plotter on the back benches. And that's always a concern for a PM when they get rid of someone. But he's clearly ambitious. He's ran to be prime minister before. Is Sunak going to face any problems due to due to this sacking? I don't think so, because from various reporting and, and the time it took, you get the impression that Sunak was doing everything he could to be helpful to Rob, And then when Rob wrote that really disgraceful resignation letter, basically, you know, it didn't even say, it wasn't sorry, not sorry. It was not sorry, not sorry. Sunak's response, again, d- didn't at any point say, well, you know, I've, I've decided that my government will be led by, you know, integrity and all those things that he went on about. He basically gave the impression that he agreed with Rob's version of events. So I, I don't, whilst Rob is, you know, seems to be angry with just about everyone in the country, perhaps the one person he might not be angry with is Sunak. Is the problem totally external, do you think, there then? Because Sunak has banged on about wanting to have integrity and have a government which is run and in a trustworthy manner. And it just seems to be a complete comedy of errors for that happening. Is this is this going to tip him further into political oblivion when it comes to electability, do you think? Well, I suppose that for a lot of people, uh, the resignation of Dominic Raab is is a sort of interesting but not particularly important moment. But yes, it, it fits into a wider picture of a government that whatever you might think of Sunak personally, I mean, I'm sure he's definitely not a bully. I'm sure he is relatively, you know, that he has his own sort of personal integrity is pretty high. But you, you look at the, the overall picture and, you know, most people look at politics as sort of little snapshots rather than perhaps obsessively, as you and I might. The overall picture does look like a, a clown car, you know, full of unpleasant people, chaos, things don't work and, and all that. And, and I, this certainly contributes to that, but I think in, in a fairly small way. We've seen plenty of people ditched from that metaphorical clown car, uh, uh, particularly members of uh, Parliament who wrote Britannia Unchained. Do do any other people look precarious at this moment? Are there any other ministers that you think might go? Well, I've I've seen references to ministers feeling nervous, and and this is 
part of what I think is a very bad faith argument that it's basically the, the argument that Rob came up with and, and he's being supported by sort of outriders in the right wing press and, and, and anonymous voices is how, how can anyone be a good manager if they can't do a little bit of in-house bullying now and then? And that, that's the basic argument. And so following this argument, which I say, I don't think it has any credibility, but if you follow that argument, you then say, well, these activist civil servants can target other cabinet ministers and bring them down. But it's not exactly clear, you know, who might be in the crosshairs here. You know, Priti Patel's already gone. She was all found to be a bully, but under the Boris Johnson system was allowed to keep her job because, of course, Boris Johnson didn't believe in any any type of standard, where I guess you could argue that Sunak has got an ever so slightly higher bar. There's this warped logic here that the civil service is bullying us, so that's why we must... Why we must bully them back is quite a yeah. quite a bizarre way to uh, wrap your head around things that are going on. Yeah, and and for what it's worth, you know, my my judgment on this as a former civil servant, the idea that because the civil servants don't agree with Brexit, they brought down Rob, is comically stupid. Because if if that were to be the case, then let's think of the other ministers they would have brought down. They would have brought down Michael Gove. They would have brought down Jacob Rees-Mogg. They would have brought down Steve Baker. You know, what actually happened is it's only Dominic Raab who created this sort of tsunami of accusations against him because he is a bully. And that's what happened. Do you see there is a rumour of Dominic Raab going to GB News to be a host there? So he is, he's following the slipstream of Jacob Rees-Mogg in, in some instances, at least. So, yeah, yeah. And, and so GBBs has got this sort of thing where they hire failed politicians. And maybe the viewers love that stuff. I have no idea because I've never watched it. But um, it, at some point, they're, you know, they're going to have quite a long roster of presenters because there are so many of these failed Tory politicians now. Yeah, I'm imagining a sort of Portillo-style travel show, but with Dominic Raab going around and doing martial arts in, in random places, probably probably parts of the Red Wall as a uh, some sort of bonding exercise up there, who knows. The full of good bit of news potentially for Sunak this week, obviously an awful bit of news more more broadly, but the illegal migration bill is uh, due for a few, third reading this week. It looks like Sunak's managed to actually make most factions of his party happy now. Could this be one bit of success for him in the next few days? Yes, I, I think it might be. And of course, the success takes many forms. And in this case, it takes the form of the government deciding to ignore the judgments of a court. Uh, in this, you know, the ECHR, which, as all our listeners will be aware, the ECHR has nothing to do with the EU. And so, of course, when we Brexited, we were still subject to that court. But by saying that the government will ignore those rulings, it placates those right wingers who are desperate for us to actually leave the ECHR. Now, Sunak, being somebody who I still think uh, is connected to planet Earth, albeit he's in a party that has mostly left it, is well aware that actually leaving the ECHR, putting us in the same category as Russia and Belarus, really is not a good look, even for Tories. So I, this is his compromise. And for the headbangers on the right of the party, I, th- I think it's it's something that they, that they feel comfortable with. On the Labour side of things, Diane Abbott, that letter was, uh, even the most charitable reading, incredibly misjudged. She's had the whip withdrawn. What's going to happen next? She's apologised, but it doesn't seem she has much leg to stand on here in terms of arguing for it back. Yeah, I, I, I just feel very sad about this because whilst 
I, you know, politically, I'm definitely not in the same place as Diana, but I, I do respect her. And I'm, you know, like everybody, I'm well aware that she's faced literally decades of, of hideous racism and sort of personal abuse, which other politicians don't get because they're not black and female. But you, as you say, you know, whatever you, what, however you try to read that letter, it's extraordinary. And the other thing that strikes me about it is that writing a letter, it, it, it's not the same as tweeting something. It's not the same as being overheard saying something. You know, it's a very conscious act where you sit down and you draft it out and you reread it and you send it. And, and she, you know, she would have had so many opportunities to think carefully before sending it. So given then that it, it brings back this whole spectre of anti-Semitism, which has been, you know, a, a really complex issue for the left of the Labour Party and one that Starmer has made it his mission to tackle, I, it's hard to see what, what her way back is. But I mean, you know, what a, what a waste, really. What a waste. It, it also seems really strange to me, the observer having that having that letter and printing it just as a as a letter rather than being considered a you know a bit of a news story itself. How no one turned around and went, are you, are you really sure about this, Diane? Whether from a a genuine this is quite a suspect letter, or from a more news driven angle of someone on the letters desk going to a reporter, hey, I think you probably want to have a bit of a a word with Diane because of this. It sort of became a story after it was a story. The story is she sent that letter and then it but it didn't emerge till everyone was was outraged by it, which is quite a uh, yeah, a strange, a strange timeline for it. She's kind of now she's in this uh you know, political wilderness. Is that maybe for her and Labour a you know a some variety of chance to to move on? We've spoken about with Jeremy Corbyn in the past, that you know, there aren't very many strong-minded and influential backbenchers who are independent politicians. Maybe could this make sense in the long run? She's, you know, she could potentially do what Jeremy Corbyn is is going to try and do, and that could that could work out better for for everyone involved here politically. Yeah, I mean the. People who know more about this than I do seem to think that Corbyn has quite a good chance of running and winning as an independent in Islington North. Whether or not the same would be the case for Diane Abbott in her seat, I, I genuinely I won't pretend I know the answer to that. For the Labour Party, you could argue if you have a few independent sort of hard left Labour MPs, that's quite good for the party because it, 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 it dilutes the, the presence within the party of these people who are who are definitely not useful at winning national elections and are very unhelpful to Starmer in in numerous ways. When it comes to to elections that are coming up, we're we're drawing on the local elections here. What's going on with this bit of Lib Dem and Labour teamwork that has emerged over the weekend? Yes, there's an interesting report in the Guardian, and it's specific to Bracknell, which is of course a sort of leafy, what you might call blue wall type area in Berkshire, very much sort of commuter M4 corridor, where on the council there, which has, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly been Tory dominated for some time, that in specific wards where, where the, the votes are, are unfolding, uh, there have been uh, either Labour candidates running or Lib Dem candidates running, but not two in the same ward, certainly where it's a sort of targetable ward. And everyone is sort of saying, oh, no, not me, Gov. But I mean, if this isn't a, a little bit of a, a sort of local um, deal, 
then you know I think you you you've got to sort of see it for what it is. But it certainly at the national level. Both parties are very much opposed to these sorts of deals. And I must say that, you know, it, it's only in one place. And, and I know because, you know, where I live in Gloucestershire, there are loads of places where you'll see a strong showing by Lib Dems, Greens and Labour and the Tory will win the ward. And, and that, you know, that continues to happen. And of course, you know, it's an argument as old as the hills and our friend and colleague Naomi Smith could talk to us about progressive alliances, but it, it ultimately that's the way the votes tend to split in this country. Is it naive of Labour to think that they don't need these sort of deals and the the Lib Dems as well in certain areas? Is it naive for them to think they can completely forego this? I understand maybe not wanting to have a a formal arrangement here, but on a case-by-case basis, surely this sort of thing does make sense for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it does make sense on a case-by-case basis. And in fact, certainly there are bits of rural Gloucestershire where you very rarely see a Labour candidate. I'm talking in in the local elections where, you know, traditionally there's this idea that Labour runs everywhere because they're obviously a major party. So, you know, you do see that happen. I think the thing is that the uh, the really big election that matters, obviously, is the parliamentary, the general election. And I think the evidence there is that the deal isn't quite as important as people think it is, because you have uh, seats where there are there aren't that many three way marginals, you know. So so in most seats, there is a reasonably clear second place uh, opponent to the Tory and voters seem reasonably uh, capable of selecting that candidate and voting for them. Now, the reason this didn't work in 2019 was because you had Jeremy Corbyn running the Labour Party. And for someone who is a a sort of Tory Lib Dem Labour switcher, uh, someone in that space in the centre of British politics was was didn't want uh, Jeremy Corbyn as their prime minister. I know this. I, I canvassed for the Lib Dems in Cheltenham. And people said, yes, but if I vote for a Lib Dem here, I get Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister. I don't want that, you know. And OK, that's anecdotal. But I think that was being seen all over the country. On to international matters. What's going on in Sudan at the moment and how is this situation going to develop? Well, basically, Sudan is encountering yet another chapter of the civil wars that have racked that country since independence. And and it it got independence in 1955. So this is a long time. And there are it's it's very tragic what has happened over the decades in Sudan. And the latest chapter of this, of course, is this this fight basically between two uh, elements of the armed forces, the RSF militia, which is one that is uh, was responsible, well, um, not solely responsible, but responsible for the genocide in Darfur, but is also in the pay of the Saudis, the Emiratis. It's got support from the Wagner group. And then you've got the sort of the main army in Sudan, which is arguably the sort of traditional ruling elite of the country. There is no evidence that either side is willing to back down. And at the moment, they're they're sort of fighting to the death, basically. How is the uh, the evacuation of people there going? And what's what's happening with that situation in terms of how our government is handling things? Yeah, so the British government, along with various other countries, has managed to extract the diplomats and their their dependents working at the embassy. And, 
you know, by all accounts, if you look at the media reports, uh, it was, you know, a fairly bold operation. They had to, they, they can't use the main airport. I mean, this has been from day one of this, of this sort of, uh, this latest outbreak of fighting. One of the problems has been that it's, it's centered around the airport in Khartoum. So, so what the, the, Brits did was was found another airstrip which was sort of out of town and then they had to get the people through what was actually a sort of running battle basically out to this other airport and fly them out it was it was a good job well done I take my hat off to all the people involved I'm sure it was very professionally managed what this is not is an evacuation of the Brits in Khartoum this is just an evacuation of the embassy so there remain lots of people hundreds of people and uh, having worked in the Foreign Office, you know, it's always a big challenge, the degree to which the British government is responsible for the safety and security of private citizens who choose to live in a certain place. You know, I obviously, the, the people who are in Sudan will have had a range of reasons that they went there. And Sudan, as I mentioned, has never been a very stable country. So, you know, some might say, well, it, it's, it's not necessarily the responsibility of the British government to look after every private citizen who who takes a, a risky choice. On the other hand, it gets very difficult for governments when someone could be interviewed live on TV or on the radio saying, I'm, a, I'm at my house in Khartoum and there are bombs going off and my kids are terrified. So how those people, because we're talking large numbers of people, not the smaller numbers in an embassy, how they could be evacuated, I, I, I don't know, because you know, the airport, the, the main airport is, is, not, is not usable. Finally, what's going on in Ukraine at the moment and how concerning were the comments that came from China's envoy to France at the weekend? Yeah, so just for those who haven't seen this, that the um, the Chinese ambassador to France, who by definition will be one of the most senior uh, Chinese diplomats anywhere, uh, said an extraordinary thing. He basically said that post-Soviet countries, by which, of course, we mean countries like Ukraine, like Estonia, like Lithuania, Latvia, so on, those countries, their sovereignty is somehow in doubt. Um, there's somehow some question mark over their status as as proper countries, which definitely is not the policy that China has adopted, because China has recognised these countries and has diplomatic relations with them. And it's definitely not the policy that anyone else in the world has adopted. So I mean, it's an extraordinary statement. One wonders, it would be sort of simplistic, but perhaps satisfying to imagine, well, maybe he's just shooting his mouth off. But you know, senior Chinese diplomats, I don't think they just sort of shoot from the hip, you know, they, they, they know, they know what they're doing, they operate in a very tightly controlled system. So that appears to be a Chinese hint that, okay, yes, we are, we are not actively supporting the Russians with their war in Ukraine, but we're leaving a, a measure of ambiguity around the issue to make it easier for Russia to do what it wants. Now, to answer your question about what's actually happening in Ukraine itself, the fighting rages on in the east, but not at the same sort of tempo that it has been in recent weeks. And really, everyone's holding their breath for the Ukrainians to start their big counteroffensive, which undoubtedly has been in the works for some time. Lots of Ukrainian military have been trained. Some of them have been trained here in the UK, some of them uh, in other countries. Of course, Ukrainians will have some new equipment. They've got the, the Western battle tanks, these German leopard tanks some British tanks and so on. So a lot hangs on this. There are arguments in the international community about whether or not after 2023, the same appetite will be there to support Ukraine in its war. So if, if Ukraine can't make much progress in this counteroffensive, 
it will find itself in a very difficult situation. And, and effectively, Russia could win this war still just by making Ukraine a failed state. If you had a big frozen conflict, an economy that doesn't function, you know, mass emigration because of that, uh, in, in the long term, Russia wins, perhaps not the way it wanted to win, but it could still win. So I think a lot hangs on this counteroffensive. Arthur, thank you for joining me this morning. It's always a pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoyed Start Your Week, remember you can back us on Patreon to help us make it. There's a bunker episode every day, and for free pound a month, you get them ad-free and early. You also get a shout-out on this very show. Here's Arthur with today's. My thanks from all the team to Peter, Charles Blakemore, and Marco. Thank you for joining us. Come back tomorrow for another edition of The Bunker. Start Your Week from The Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Arthur Snell. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich with audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The group editor was Andrew Harrison with music by Kenny Dickinson. Start Your Week from The Bunker is a Podmasters production.